see. You turn with me in your Bibles. There are Bibles at the back as well if you'd like to avail yourselves of those. Uh, to the second book in the Bible, Exodus. And we're in chapter 12. And we're reading in a few moments from verses 29 through to 42. Shall we pray? Let's all pray before we read God's words. Heavenly Father, I just do thank you for the gospel. I thank you that we stand here by faith in Christ, through belief in his finished work, ransomed, healed, restored, forgiven. We just thank you for the privilege, the wonder of knowing that we have peace with God and that we shall live with Jesus. In his precious name, amen. So Exodus in chapter 12 and verse 29, at midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sat on his throne, to the firstborn of the captive, who was in the dungeon. And all the firstborn of the livestock, and Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up! Go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go, serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have, as, as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also. And the Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste, for they said, we shall all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls being bound up in their cloaks on their shoulders. The people of Israel had also done what Moses had told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewellery and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favour in the sight of the Egyptians, so that they let them have what they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramesses to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot, besides women and children, a mixed multitude also went up with them, and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. And they baked unleavened cakes of the dough they had brought out of Egypt, for it was not leavened, because they were thrust out of Egypt and could not wait, nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. The time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years on that very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. It was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So this same night is a night of watching kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout their generations. And this is the word of the Lord. Some of the best, some of the worst things we do is watching. It can be wonderful to watch out of the window for a loved one to return home or to watch at the airport for the um, arrival screen to say that flight has landed. Or to watch for your friends to come over. To watch with your phone as your child or your grandchild takes their first little steps. Or watch with your face pressed against the oven for that nice delicious pizza to be cooked. Whatever it is you're watching for, watching can be wonderful. It's a good thing. 
But watching can also be horrible. It can be terrible. Watching someone drive away, not knowing when you'll see them again. Watching that plane take off and not knowing when you'll see your child or your loved one again. Or watching someone that you care for make very poor decisions in their life and realising that you can't live their life for them. Watching can be very hard. If you think you've got a nice weekend here in Keswick and then you watch the rain fall down. Or, but this passage is about watching. It's about watching by the Lord and for the Lord. We see it in verse 42, the Passover night, the night of the Exodus, the actual leaving of Egypt. And we've been looking at this for some weeks now, chapter 12. It was a night of watching by the Lord. So however else you would describe it, it was a night above all of the Lord watching out for his people and watching over his people. Can you remember a time when the Lord watched out for you? When the Lord was evidently watching out for you? I hope you can. I trust that we can all remember when the Lord was watching out for us. I remember attending um, a church leadership retreat in the early noughties, in the winter, in the snow, up a mountain. And on the, on the way up, I had omitted to put winter tyres on the car and it slewed across the road and it was inches away from a sheer cliff drop, literally inches away. The road was icy, I was a dumb Brit, I could do nothing. So we called our friends and an Austrian friend managed to get the car to the bottom of the mountain. There are two ways of responding. To I could have broken out into a cold sweat and rocked quietly in the fetal position for the rest of the weekend. Or to give thanks to God for his providence. To give thanks to God that he was watching out <coughs> over us. I've had a couple of those experiences when the snow caught me by it. Once I spun around on the, on the motorway and was facing all the cars coming towards me. So the Lord has been watching out over me. You may have some travel experiences of your own. You may have stories of health of your own when the Lord was watching out for you, when the Lord has arranged our lives. And whether you look back and think, the Lord gave us a great miracle that day, or the Lord gave us great safety that day, or even, no, they didn't get better. The danger didn't pass by. But yet, I see, even in that, the Lord was watching out for us. And you have your own stories. And you can trace God, the Lord, watching out over you. We know of surgeons, or babies who were born too early, or babies that were born dead and yet lived, of pregnancies that people thought would never happen. Not only in the Bible with Sarah, but, you know, but, but there are, you know, maybe you know in your family or even yourself. And sometimes it's going through the things that do not go as we would like or expect, that the Lord teaches us most how he loves and he watches over us. We can all think back over our lives to a time when the Lord was watching over us. The hymn writer Fanny Crosby wrote, All the way my Saviour leads me, 
What have I to ask beside? Can I doubt his tender mercy, who through life has been my guide? Heavenly peace, divinest comfort, here by faith in him to dwell. For I know whate'er before me, Jesus doeth all things well. But Passover was a night, unlike any other, of the Lord watching over his people. The Exodus is one example after the other of God's watchful care. We see it particularly in this passage. The structure is very simple this morning, just to walk through the text and to see evidences of God watching over his people. Would you do that with me? Just look out as we go through the text of God watching out for his people. And then we finish briefly by looking at their response and our response to God's tender care for us. So God's watching, judging the Egyptians, and the victory over Egypt was devastating and relentless. So 10 plagues, there was one after the other. And now 400 years of oppression has come to an end. It says they were in Egypt 430 years. It talks in the rest of scripture sometimes about 400 years it's a rounding issue. It's 400 years of bondage in, in Egypt. Or they could have been slaves for 400 years, but been in Egypt for 430 years. Because they came during the famine with Jacob and his sons when Joseph was in charge. And they lived there for some years before a new pharaoh came and had enslaved them. But they've been waiting and wailing as slaves for a long time. And the wailing that they did as a slave people back in Exodus 3 is the very same word in Hebrew used for the cry of the Egyptians in verse 30. Yahweh, Jehovah, the Lord, has shown, has proved their gods are nothing and less than nothing. Their gods, as we have seen, have one central purpose. The purposes of Egypt, the gods were... To, to provide life, fertility, crops, rain, and safe passage after death. They had gods and goddesses to help them secure that. Now the very purpose of Egypt's gods and goddesses have been completely undermined. They are powerless. A river, darkness, hail, boils, death itself in a tenth plague. These deities are, are the, they're completely the opposite of being mighty to save. They were impotent to save. God is mighty to save. The false gods of this world are impotent. And here we have, after its announcement, the tenth plague, by far the worst. The prediction of this plague in, was in Exodus 11, that was a few weeks back. And you have to imagine that the Egyptians heard something of this. They had seen, they'd been present for the nine plagues. They'd seen what the God of the Hebrews could do. Surely they must have heard. Word must have gotten around to Pharaoh, his men, throughout the Egyptian countryside that another plague was coming and it is the worst. Perhaps if they were within eyeshot of some of the Israelites in Goshen or around the country, they would have seen them doing a very strange thing. Can you imagine it? Just, you know, just imagine it. To see the Egyptians slaughtering a lamb. 
and then painting blood on the lintel and the doorpost. What do you think the Egyptians thought? Perhaps they didn't believe it. We're not going to be like those silly Hebrews. Blood on their doorposts. What nonsense. I will just retreat and, re and read my Twitter and get some help that way. Well, what, what we have just seen here would be something, but I'm sure it's natural. I'm sure it's climate change, after all. That's what people lie in the road for, isn't it? They've just been very odd around here recently. It's just a bit odd. No. Or perhaps they wondered if they should believe it. Maybe they went to bed fearful. Maybe they were eager to wake up the next morning to make sure it came, or dreading the next morning to see if what had been predicted came true. Do you think they took shifts in the night to look out of the window? Or the husband to sit guarding the firstborn? The wife looking after the husband? Or they went into the bedroom or the tent to see, is he breathing? Is he breathing? And then to be woken in the middle of the night by the screams. By those screams. That crying. Fear in the worst rushing in and finding that the Lord God of the Hebrews is to be feared and he had done what he said he would do from the highest in the land to the lowest. As one writer puts it, from the palace to the pit, there is no escape in God's judgment. Judgment upon Egypt for 400 years of oppression and judgment on Pharaoh and his people for the slaughter of the innocents. God is no respecter of persons. We hear a lot about equality and fairness. And in God you have one who is no respecter of persons. He will not give you an easy passage because if you're a millionaire or a billionaire. He will not give you safe passage if you're the poorest of the poor. When it comes to the judgment of God, your privilege and position will never save you. And when it comes to the judgment of God, he will not spare you because you are despised and destitute. Some of us deep down think one or, the, one or the other. Well, I'm kind of important. I haven't been perfect, but someday when I stand before God, he will know that I have done my best. I've tried really hard. I'm an important person, I'm looked up to in the community. I've been faithful in my job. I've supported my family. I've been rather impressive, actually. Not good enough. Not good enough. And there may be others who have been tempted to think, well, life has just been one unremitting sense of failure, one after the other. I didn't have the parents. I didn't have the opportunities. I never went overseas. I've been sick and ill. I've been impoverished. I've never had what other people had. God is going to give me a great big break. No. From the palace to the pit, the firstborn in every household was dead. Surely you can see and I hope you can feel the connection with your own life. Because judgment is coming. God will not be a respecter of the person. If you look around the world, there are people, they have a pervasive security. People don't think that Jesus is coming again. All around us, we think that people are much more concerned about everything under the sun, but they don't think about the one thing that they need to think about, and that Jesus is coming again. 
You know, it's, I, I, you, know you can list 101 things, but when it comes to it, they, they take up their time with lots of things. They're not bad in themselves, but it's sort of like, well, well you know, the latest diet, or fossil fuels, or what a terrible job the government are doing, or the strikes, or whatever it may be. But the one thing we must all face up to is that Jesus is coming again, and he's coming in judgment. Are you covered by the blood of the Lamb? God is no respecter of persons. You will not pass through that night safe and secure because of the number of zeros in your bank account or the number of degrees hanging on your wall, or the number of difficult circumstances in your lives. It doesn't matter how high and mighty you are, or how low and debased you are, you're not safe without the blood. My friend, if there's only one thing you take away this morning, we're not safe without the blood of Jesus. Precious, precious blood of Jesus, shed on Calvary, shed for rebels, shed for sinners, shed for me. The angel of the Lord passed through the camp of the Israelites and only then did he find what he was looking for. He wasn't looking for people who were good enough. He wasn't looking for people who had been brought up a certain way. He wasn't looking for the people who were wearing the shirts and ties. No, he wasn't looking for people who were good enough or looked good enough to earn God's favour. He wasn't looking for people who tried oh so very hard. He wasn't looking for a people who had done a pretty good job with the poor hand that had been dealt them. He was looking for the blood. And not just the sign of the blood itself, but what it represented. It was the faith. The blood represented the faith to trust in the substitute. Do you get that? What did the blood represent? It, it represented the faith to trust in the substitute. Anyone could smear something on their doors, but it took faith to hear what God had said and take him at his word. And that's why we must take God at his word and that's why we must obey every word in this book. Because we take God at his word. We obey what he has said. And my only hope to be spared from death this night is to have one die in my place and to have that substitute over my household. Luke 18, verse 8. I tell you, he'll give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? When the angel of the Lord passed through the camp, will he find blood on the doorposts? When Christ returns, will he find what he is looking for? Faith on the earth. Only faith in the blood will save you. God is no respecter of persons. So we see his great mercy for his people to watch over them by passing over them, by providing a substitute for their sin to judge the Egyptians and save the people of God. And then secondly, God's watching, humiliating Pharaoh. Pharaoh is thoroughly rooted, routed, reduced to nothing. Back in Exodus 5, Pharaoh said to Moses, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Look at the complete turnaround in verse 31. Up, go out from my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go, serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone. Be gone. Total surrender, no negotiation. 
The man who said nine times, I will not let them go, said, up, go, out, be gone. Think about it. All of that hardness of heart gained in what? Exactly nothing. Philippians 2 verse 10. So at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. On earth, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. One day, everyone will know it. Everyone will know it. The people who swear that they're atheists, the people who rail against the Christian, they will bow the knee to the Lord Jesus, the living God. One day, everyone will know it. Everyone will get it. And everyone will see it. For some, it will be the greatest day of rejoicing ever. Come, Lord Jesus. But for others, it will be a day of profound regret and loss, as it was for Pharaoh. Some are so hard-hearted. But God always has his way. Always. Now or later. And now is the easy way. And later is the heart. Pharaoh was made to care. The high and mighty reduced to begging and pleading. It wasn't repentance. He was simply asking, just leave. And can you leave me a blessing as you go? Could you just make things okay? It's always easier to ask for a blessing than ask for forgiveness. Pharaoh never could quite ask for forgiveness. He could ask for prayer. Moses, pray for me. Moses, bless me. But forgiveness was a whole other matter. Pharaoh was broken, but not penitent. And he finally saw in a moment of clarity that he needed to be rid of these Hebrews. But it wasn't a moment of surrender to the Lord. No matter how long you hold out, how hard your heart, or no matter how much you raise your fist at God, he will have his way with you. So what did all of Pharaoh's wrangling and hardness gain him? Nothing. We've come full circle. When the Israelites first came into Egypt in Genesis 47, Joseph was in charge of the second in command under Pharaoh. And the last time the Israelites blessed the Pharaoh was when Joseph was around in Genesis 47. Pharaoh said, could you bless me? And they provided a blessing for him. Now 430 years on, Pharaoh says, you need to bless me. We had a Pharaoh at the beginning who at least recognised the worth of Joseph and was friendly and kind and gracious to his family. He was blessed. And the Pharaoh at the end is hard-hearted and he comes around and says, would you bless me also? Pharaoh had been humiliated and we can be humbled in this life. We can humble ourselves or we will be humbled in the life to come. And then God's watching, thirdly, kicking his people out. The Egyptian people hadn't been as stubborn as Pharaoh. They're urgent with the people of Israel. Send them out, leave right now. What do you need? You're ruining our lives. The language in verse 39, they were thrust out of Egypt. You may wonder how this is a mercy to them. It's not that they got up one day and said, hey, look, Egypt is letting us go. No, the Egyptians forcibly expelled them. They kicked them out. Well, that's a strange way to put it. I thought God delivered them out of Egypt. He set them free. He redeemed them from bondage. Well, of course he did. That was a testimony to his mercy, but so was the manner with which he delivered them. It was God's mercy to kick them out and to thrust them out, to expel them from Egypt. 
God knew that Pharaoh wasn't the only one with a hard heart or stubborn. He knew that the people he was rescuing could be pretty stubborn too. And he knew that it could be difficult to leave the only home that they'd known for 400 years. They were slaves, but it was home. It's the life they knew, it's where they lived. And God knew the only way to get them out was to thrust them out. It was his mercy to compel them to leave. Have you ever had a time in your life, I know I have, when I said, God, I know I must do this, but I'm not sure I can unless you make me. You ever, you ever, had, ever, ever had that experience? Some people call it procrastination. I'm quite good at that. And uh, things happen and they're not what you had in mind. And you look back and you say, well, that's all of God's mercy. God, that was kind. Because I didn't know how I was going to extract myself. God has a sometimes a severe mercy toward us to get us to do the thing that is so hard for us to do. How happy would you be to leave the only home you've ever known? We want to be free, of course, but we want to be free and stay put. It was his mercy to kick them out of Egypt. And then fourthly, God's watching, plundering the Egyptians. This is an important part of the Exodus account. It repeats over and over, they left with gold, silver, jewellery and clothing from the Egyptians. It wasn't stealing, but God made the Egyptians favourably disposed toward them. It is of a conquering army leaving with the spoils of war. The Israelites were Jehovah's hosts. They were Jehovah's army. They were Jehovah's soldiers. And they were arrayed in their divisions, heading out like a victorious army. To the victor goes the spoils. And this is one way that God was providing for his people, even before they set out on their journey. Verse 39, they hadn't prepared provisions for themselves. God prepared and provided for them. How are they going to have money to buy something from the caravans in the wilderness? They don't know that they're going to wander for another 40 years. How are they going to buy supplies? They'd been slaves. They didn't have wealth and money. God gave them the gold and silver of the Egyptians. I dare say there's never been a slave people set free with such wealth. They had livestock, cattle, and they went with all the best things that the Egyptians gave them. Have you ever made this connection before? Think about the two things that they did with the gold and silver from the Egyptians. The two things they did with the gold and silver. Can you think of them? Exodus 25, they built the tabernacle. And Exodus 32, the golden calf. The gold and silver that God provided, the Egyptians gave them. They built the tabernacle and they built the golden calf. God gives, gives us gifts we do not deserve. Your health, your home, your job, your ability, your intellect, your access, your opportunities. He gives us all kinds of things. You're good with people maybe. Or maybe... You're a bean counter, you're good with money. He gives us gifts, he plundered the Egyptians. He gave us things we do not deserve and we use them and we abuse them. They built the tabernacle and they built the golden calf. The same plunder that built the worship place for God was, built, was used to build 
um, a purpose for idolatry. It's not wrong to have silver or gold, but will you use it for God's purposes or for idolatry? And at this point, it was God's mercy watching over them to provide for them with the gold and silver from the Egyptians. And fifthly, God's watching a great multitude. Verse 37, the people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Succoth, 600,000 men on foot besides women and children. God sent them out from a great, a great multitude from Ramses, a storehouse city, to Succoth. And Succoth is the Hebrew word for tents and booths. So they went to a town called Tentville, as they would have probably called it. They dwelt in tents, 600,000 men on foot, fighting men 20 years and up. So people argue about this too. A lot of, we, we spend a lot of time arguing about stuff we read sometimes. But um, I read that somebody, how could they possibly have had 600,000 fighting men? That puts the total of Israelites leaving into millions. How can you send millions out into the night like this? How does the wilderness provide for them like this? Well, it says 600,000. The word for thousand is the Hebrew word elef. It can also be translated as cattle, clans, divisions, family, oxen, and tribes. So it's possible 600,000 is saying 600 fighting units, if you want to go to the Elif route. Some people say a fighting unit would have been 12, so there was probably 7,000 people, 30,000 people left. That's possible, and I don't necessarily think it undermines the authority of Holy Scripture, but I'm going to stick with 600,000. I tend to stick with what I read, and there's a jolly good reason not to. Um, but one of the biggest dangers I find is today, and there's been lots of papers commenting on it in recent weeks, one of the biggest dangers to civilization is the rapidly falling birth rate. One of the biggest dangers to civilization as we know it. And God is sovereign and over all things and our times are in his hand. But when mankind rejects God's command to be fruitful and multiply, within the marriage of one man and one woman, we shouldn't be surprised that's the dumbest plan ever. Ever since they looked at the sky after listening to Noah and saying it's going to be another fine day tomorrow. But um, I'm going to read something from, from an article I read. The fertility issue is hardly unique to South Korea. Look at the comments in any piece in the UK about our own failing birth rates. And half the people say, good thing too. And with all our environmental problems, it becomes easier to solve with fewer people. David Attenborough said that along with other many environmentalists and feminists. You don't have to go far to find people cheering on the dwindling of our species. But I'm going to stick with 600,000. And in Exodus 38, the number is 603, 550. And if they count that in, in, in Exodus 38, it sounds like somebody's getting their fingers, taking their socks off and counting this thing up. You can look and do the math yourself. It's possible in 400 plus years, a family of 70 with the Lord's help can grow to this rate. The global growth rate peaked in 1963 at 2.2%. And the growth rate would be more than enough to have the Israelites from 70 to a few million 430 years later. So the point being is not to tell you what a great guy I am at maths, but to see God's provision for them. God made them strong. 
even when they were a subjected slave people. And what we're meant to see is the fulfilment of the Abrahamic blessing. And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. What was the covenant God made to Abraham? Though when Abraham received the promise he had no child, he would be the father of a great nation. And we see a great nation, a great nation leaving slavery in Egypt. 600,000 fighting men, 3 million Israelites. Do you see the point? God does not have to put you in paradise to keep his promises. Egypt will do just fine. But God, we're, we're, we're slaves. We've been here 400 years. You have all these promises. I know. What makes you think I've forgotten the promise just because you're in Egypt? I promised you a great nation. I am doing that. My friend, we worship a promise-keeping God. The living God. The God who always keeps his promises. And sixthly, God's watching. It was a great multitude, but I'm not going to forget a mixed multitude. Verse 38. So in Exodus, there were non-Israelites that went out with the Israelites. John Calvin said, From hence we gather that the mixed multitude which united themselves with the Israelites were either Egyptians or had migrated from the neighbouring countries to take up their habitation as fertile lands attracted strangers. It's a unique expression, the mixed multitude. It's Arab Rab. I was doing quite a lot of Hebrew passing this week. I think my family got a bit fed up with it. I was trying to do a lot of Hebrew, trying to play a lot of Hebrew. Oh, there's a different expression used to similar effect in Numbers 11 verse 14. And it actually means there... The rabble, the hangers honours, the people in the periphery of the camp. And most scholars think it is a reference to the mixed multitude. And in Numbers 11 verse 14, I'm going to have a go at this, the Hebrew word is asaps up. Asaps up. I think I got that right. So maybe the best English translation to get what's going on here, it's riffraff. There was riffraff, non-Israelites. So why give you all this Hebrew? Because I think there's a play on words here. It's hard for you to hear it as I say it, but the phrase at the beginning of verse 38, Erab Rab, is an anagram, which if you take the same letters and mix them around, you get the word Abar or Ebri, which is the word for Hebrew. Okay, you understand where I'm going with this. So Erab Rab, the mixed multitude is taking the letters of the word for Hebrew, scrambling them around, which is another way of saying that these are the Hebrews and these are the non-Hebrews. God's people, and look, we are a mixed multitude of people, which is a wonderful picture. It's a wonderful picture. Forget all that attempt at Hebrew just for a minute, because God allowed the riffraff to come along with them. Isn't it great that we are a church full of riffraff? Isn't it great? And that there's room for you and there's room for me. And somehow in the midst of all these plagues, there were some Egyptians, Cushites, people from neighbouring lands who saw what God was doing and saying, Yahweh, I want to be with him. Even if it's a slave people, I want to be with the people because of what he has done for them. I want to go where he is going. Where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. 
and your God, my God. A mixed multitude. Even non-Israelites came and said, the God of the Hebrews is worth following. Have you said that? You may look the part. You may look the part. You may look like a churchgoer. You may even frown at people who don't look like you. But have you trusted the finished work of the Lord Jesus? Have you repented and put your trust in his finished work? It would change you if you had. It would change you. And uh, it says they set out that very day. It doesn't mean that very exact same day they came to Egypt. The same day these things happened. They came out 430 years later. It was a night of watching by the Lord. Look at all the ways that the Lord God watched over them to save them. Defeated their false gods. Humiliated Pharaoh. Made the Egyptians favourable towards them. Ejected them. Gave them great wealth as they went. Preserved their numbers. And he brought along a mixed multitude. It was a night of watching by the Lord. You see the play of words as I read them in verse 42. It was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So this same night is a night of watching kept to the Lord. God kept vigil over them that night. It's not too much for him to ask that we would keep a vigil for him. Of course, it's different. It's not us watching out for God, but it's a night of commemoration, a night of watching. And lastly, the proper response to God watching out for us is that we watch and we wait for him. And for the Israelites, it was Passover. But that was just a metaphor. It was a symbol of their trust in God, for their watching and waiting, just as God watched and waited for them. We don't celebrate Passover, but our response is the same. God has watched over you. Now here comes the hard part. Can you wait and watch for him? If we knew when God was going to show up and what he was going to do, then the watching would be easy. I, had, I mean, there's been people over history. I remember that chap called Harold Camping. And Harold Camping said that the Lord would come on the 20th of October, many, yet, yet a few years. And every year he kind of got it slightly wrong. And I had a guy in our church who actually believed him. And I, I, I showed up at worship the next Sunday and I go, you know, but um, there is no God app that tells you when Christ is coming again. You're not going to get an app on your phone that says, yeah, get ready. You can sin all you like to the night of this day and then the Lord will come. No, 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 no. The only thing that we can be sure of is that Christ is coming again. And there's no God app that tells you what God is going to do on Friday. There's no God app that will tell you what the test results will be. There's no God app that will tell you how the pregnancy is going to end up or what is going to happen with that job interview or what the next 15 years of your life, where you'll be this time next week. So we're left watching and waiting. And watching is hard because we don't know what God will do, but God calls us to watch because we have seen what he can do. God calls us to watch because we have seen what he can do. Look back on your life. Look back on our life as the people of God. Look back, most importantly, at these stories. God was there. My friend, God was there for 430 years. It looked like he was not, but he came. He came, he delivered them. You never know what God is going to do. Sometimes his timing is slow. 
And then it's, make haste, go. That is our God. 400 years is a long time, now go. And they left in the middle of the night. They were there 400 years and they left in the middle of the night. No time to make bread. You have all the silver and gold you need. Watching and waiting, not because we know what God will do, but because we know what God has done. Amen? We know what God has done. So will you trust the good shepherd, keeping watch over his flock, even by night? Keep waiting and watching. Trust that he knows his sheep by name. Trust that the Lord has not forgotten you, that the Lord is not absent. The Lord is listening. The Lord can, the Lord cares, and the Lord will in his own time and in his own way. My friend, the Lord is watching over us. Let us watch for him. Amen.